0: summer morning in 1989 I decided to go for a walk. I can't remember exactly what my original goal was. I knew it was nice out and I thought I would go see what was around. This was going to be one of those walks that usually ended with me either getting a slice of pizza, maybe playing a video game, or maybe just walking around the mall a couple of times. I found myself walking to this outdoor mall. It didn't have a lot of stores, But I didn't like walking around it, because it was well manicured, it had nice places to sit. It also had a Burger King, and it was a pretty good Burger King. It was one of the few fast food places that had come to my town, and to my young mind, there weren't many things better than a Burger King within walking distance. Now, the thing about that Burger King is it's right next to a movie theater. And when I got close, I remembered, oh, this is the weekend that Batman comes out. And I thought, oh, this would be great. Maybe I'll go see Batman after I grab a burger. We're still a good amount of time before the burger place opened but I thought I would ask one of the people I saw in the box office what time they started selling tickets. As I approached he said wow you're real early for the film. I laughed that off and I said well what time do you start selling tickets. He said well it's going to be a bit. Now while I'm doing this a group of people came up behind me and I heard them angrily and disappointedly exclaim how are we not the first person here. I looked behind me, I saw these six people, and I thought, oh, they think I'm online for Batman. That would make me first in line for Batman. Now, I had no intention of being first in line for Batman that day. But, here I was, first in line for Batman. If I remember right, one of them came up to me and said, are you in line for Batman? This was the moment of truth. Just over to the left here, maybe 30 feet is Burger King. And I'm still a good amount off from lunchtime. And right in front of me is the glory of being first in line to see this big movie that everybody's talking about. Much to the chagrin of the people behind me, I opted to stay in line. I would be the first person to buy a ticket for Batman in my town. The line quickly grew, and with each group, the loud exclamation of disappointment got further and further away. Eventually, the box office would open. The guy who saw me seemed a little surprised that I had stuck around. But, he gave me a ticket. He also gave me a poster to Batman, which went to the first person who bought a ticket that day. Once I got through the door, nothing mattered. It was just chaos as people flooded in. I did manage to get the seat I liked, and I sat there and watched Batman for the first time, all by myself, holding on to my poster for dear life, feeling that somebody was going to snag it. Now, before I had bought that ticket, before I had gotten in line that day, I had not fully bought into Batman mania. Afterwards, I was all in. I was all about Batman from that point on, and all of the great promotions, everything that happened afterwards, I was completely on board with. I hung that Batman poster on my wall, became a fan of the film, and I still am to this day. It's fun when random chance plays a role in your memories, and it can actually influence parts of your life tremendously. I would have seen Batman in 1989 if I had not gone to Burger King that day. But I wouldn't have had this great experience, being first in line, and the object of jealousy of the people behind me, had I not. And having done so makes everything so much better. Also, afterwards I did go to that Burger King, and it was delicious, so I got everything I wanted that day and more. On today's show I'd like to talk to you about that movie that I saw on that summer day, Tim Burton's Batman. We'll talk about the production of the film, the people in front of and behind the camera, its reception batmania the music and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there we have an info-packed episode ahead of us so without further ado let's start the show Batman is a 1989 film directed by Tim Burton that is about the iconic DC Comics character Batman. It would be the first installment of a Warner Brothers series that would stretch multiple films and star multiple people in the lead role. To see where Batman started, we have to go back. And I'm not going to go as far back as the creation of Batman or the 1966 series. But I'm going to jump in to post-Superman Batman. And the Superman I'm talking about is the motion picture Superman from 1978, which was a success. After its success, Superman co-writer Tom Mankiewicz wrote a first draft of a Batman screenplay that told the story of Batman and Robin's origins. For those not familiar with Batman, Batman is a caped vigilante superhero who fights crime in Gotham City in the comics He's often joined by his sidekick, Robin, who's his young ward. In Mankiewicz's version, the villains were the Joker and the Penguin, and a lot of the elements were taken from the 1978 comic book Strange Apparitions, which was written by Steve Englehart. The culmination of the film would have basically been the birth of Robin, Robin putting on the costume for the first time at the end. Producers signed on, it got a budget, which would have been about $20 million. And a release date of sometime in 1985. This version of the film stalled. Eventually, new people were brought on board as producers. Now, the film had been shopped around to directors who had signed on. We'll talk a little bit about them in a few. But the origins of this version start when producers John Peters and Peter Guber came on board and they had seen Pee Wee's Big Adventure in 1985. Tim Burton seemed like an up and comer and someone who could do something interesting with Batman. And he was offered the chance to direct it. But first, Burton wanted to change the script. So he and his girlfriend at the time, Julie Hickson, wrote a 30-page treatment of the project. The producers and the studio liked this treatment. Tim Burton had met Sam Hamm, who had just signed a two-year contract with Warner Brothers, and asked him if he wanted to write the screenplay based on what he and Hickson had done. Hamm got started on it. But there was a writer strike that started and a new writer needed to be brought on. So Burton brought on Beetlejuice co-writer Warren Skarin to continue the work. Now it took three years for the project to finally get close to closing. But it wasn't until the box office returns of Beetlejuice came in and things looked positive that the studio decided to greenlight Tim Burton's version of Batman. One of the things that was dropped between the Ham and Scarron version was the inclusion of Dick Grayson, who would go on to play Robin. The Dick Grayson character was just a cameo rather than a supporting character, and things would focus more on Batman and the villain, the Joker. Sam Ham was born in 1955. is a screenwriter and comic book writer. The Batman screenplay would be his biggest claim to fame. He would also contribute to the story for Batman Returns, the sequel. Two other movies that Ham is credited for are Monkey Bone and Never Cry Wolf. Warren Scarron is a screenwriter who's worked on a great number of films, including Beverly Hills Cop 2, Beetlejuice, Batman. He also wrote a draft for the 1986 film Top Gun. A very interesting thing about Scarron is he wrote two unproduced sequels to movies that I really enjoy. He wrote a sequel to The Jewel of the Nile from 1985 that was called The Crimson Eagle and a sequel to Beetlejuice, which was called Beetlejuice in Love. The screenplay to Beetlejuice in Love would be the last screenplay he would work on before he passed away. Between the initial screenplay of Batman and Tim Burton taking over, other people were offered Batman, including Richard Donner, who had worked on Superman, Joe Dante, and Ivan Reitman. Of course, ultimately, it would land with Timothy Walter Burton. A little bit about Burton. Born in 1958, he's a writer, director, artist, producer. Has a fantasy bent to the work with a hint of horror thrown in. He's done films that a lot of people have heard of. Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Sleepy Hollow. Many, many more. One of my favorites of his is the film Ed Wood. Tim Burton explained the central theme of his version of Batman when he said, The whole film and mythology of the character is a complete duel of the freaks. It's a fight between two disturbed people. The Joker is such a great character because there's a complete freedom to him. Any character who operates on the outside of society and is deemed a freak and an outcast then has the freedom to do what they want. They are the darker sides of freedom. Insanity is, in some scary way, the most freedom you can have, because you're not bound by the laws of society. A lot of this permeates his version of Batman. When Tim Burton makes a film, he has a style. And to get a unique style, Tim Burton went to production designer Anton Furst. Anton Furst was his first choice to work with on Beetlejuice, but Furst was otherwise occupied with the 1988 comedy High Spirits. When Burton got Batman, he was able to successfully hire First to work on the film. And what you see on the screen is a magical collaboration between First and Burton. According to First, I don't think I've ever felt so naturally in tune with a director. They made a Gotham City that had clashing architecture. First's influences everywhere in the unique architecture of Gotham, which, according to First, they wanted to make Gotham City the ugliest and bleakest metropolis imaginable. We imagined what New York City might have become without a planning commission, a city run by crime, with a riot of architectural styles, an essay in ugliness, as if hell erupted through the pavement and kept on going. I mostly wanted to talk about First for that quote, because... It's such a wonderful production designer thing to say and almost poetry when you read it. Other notable people involved would be makeup effects designer Nick Dudman, who did the work for Jack Nicholson's Joker. Nicholson wouldn't sign on to do the Joker role until he got to pick what makeup style would work. And Dudman's would win, which isn't easy because it had to look realistic and yet scary. It also had to be pale white but not get washed out on the screen. So a lot of work went into it. Costume design was by Bob Ringwood, who did an impressive job with the bat suit. And according to Ringwood, the real challenge is because the image of Batman in the comics is this huge, big six-foot-four hunk with a dimpled chin. Michael Keaton is a guy with an average build. So you had to take a guy who was average and make him look bigger make him look threatening. And he did it so well that even people like Sylvester Stallone look at Batman as the death knell for the muscly action hero star. Because at that point, costume designers could make anyone look big. Media interest in the Batman film was high, which basically made them decide to not shoot the entire film on the back lot in Burbank, California. Instead, it was shot at Pinewood Studios in England. And shooting went on from October 10th, 1988 to February 14th, 1989. That had 80 days of main shooting and 86 days of second unit shooting. Which for the size of this film, and that little amount of time, is an amazingly well-organized achievement. Well, that achievement came with a cost. The original budget was $30 million, and that would balloon to $48 million dollars. I can imagine a lot of that was on security because people started to be very interested in this film. After the Star Wars films, this might have been one of the most highly charged films with a fan-based interest where the media really wanted to know what this was all about. At one point, two reels of film footage were stolen, which is about 20 minutes of the film, and the police had to be called in. Tim Burton said that the filming itself was torture just not a great moment for him in his life, not an enjoyable experience because of all of this craziness. It's funny to talk about what Batman is about. Batman permeates so much of our pop culture nowadays that most people know so much about Batman. But here we are in 1989 and and what most people knew about Batman was either from the comic books, the Super Friends animated series, or way back In 1966, the Batman television series starring Adam West. But here we are in a new Batman. And as soon as that credit sequence starts up, you know it's not Batman 1966 from that point. As we enter this Batman's Gotham City, we see that it is a dark and grim place. And a vigilante, a Batman, is targeting the city's criminals. Soon we meet Jack Napier, who is second-in-command to mob boss Carl Grissom, and the two elements of the law enforcement community, Commissioner Gordon and DA Harvey Dent, are targeting Grissom. Napier is actually being set up by Grissom because he was having an affair with Grissom's mistress, Alicia. And during the ambush to have him killed, Napier falls in a vat of chemicals. Everybody thinks he's dead, but he survives. But there's a side effect. He has chalk-white skin. Bright green hair, a crazy grin, and he's been driven insane. He takes the name Joker and then becomes a performance artist of sorts. But all of his performances are about killing. This brings him in conflict with Batman, whose secret identity is Bruce Wayne. There's also some reporters in the mix who are trying to find out who Batman is. Eventually, we meet Bruce Wayne, we meet reporter Vicki Vale, who develop a relationship. This, of course, all leads to Batman and the Joker facing off, with only one of them surviving. Now we'll talk a little bit about the cast of the film. While Batman is the name of the film, the big star in this version of Batman is the Joker. And a lot of that has to do with who played him, Jack Nicholson. I believe Jack Nicholson was the first choice for this when he had decided he wasn't going to do the film. The role was offered to other people, including Robin Williams, who accepted the role. Then they used his acceptance as leverage against Nicholson, saying that Williams had taken the role. At that point, Nicholson said, well, okay, I will guess I'll play the Joker. Williams was not happy. And when they wanted him to play the Riddler in a Batman sequel, he refused and didn't want to be involved in any Warner Brothers productions until they had apologized to him. Other people who were up for the role, not only for this version of the Joker, but also earlier incarnations of the film include Tim Curry, Willem Dafoe, James Woods, Donald Sutherland, John Lithgow, and many, many others. Jack Nicholson did a great job with the role and would later say it is one of his favorite roles to play. He especially liked that he was given a lot of creative freedom. Whenever you take a role, your character has traits, but the Joker is about being unpredictable, which let Nicholson have greater freedom than he had had in almost any other film. John Joseph Nicholson was born in 1937, an award-winning actor and filmmaker did a stretch of films in the 70s and early 80s that were very well received and won awards. Movies like Five Easy Pieces, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Terms of Endearment. But that's just a small drop in the well. He's been nominated for 12 Academy Awards, which it makes him the most nominated male actor in history. And he would win the award twice. One for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975 and then again in 1997 for the film As Good As It Gets. He would also win a Best Supporting Actor for his role in Terms of Endearment in 1983. The title role in the film would go to Michael Keaton, who would play Bruce Wayne and Batman. A lot of other people had been up for this role. It is a laundry list of just about every actor you could imagine has claimed to have been up for this role, or has been associated with it in some way. One of the things that Keaton would bring to the role that would pass on to other people's performances as Batman was the idea of talking in a really low register to disguise one's voice. This would become something that other actors would use in Batman roles. And it was mostly an idea that Keaton had come up with because he thought that it would be too easy to guess who somebody was. And to him, logically, it made sense that someone would try to change their voice when talking as Batman which actually does make a lot of sense. Michael Keaton was born Michael John Douglas. Before Batman, he had mostly been known as a comic actor, having appeared in Mr. Mom, Night Shift, Johnny Dangerously, and Beetlejuice. That same year that he did Beetlejuice, he also did a drama called Clean and Sober, which showed his dramatic chops. And it made people think, maybe he's a pretty serious actor, and he could probably do well as Bruce Wayne. Playing the role of Vicki Vale was Kim Basinger. She was supposed to be the original choice to play Vicky Vale, but because of scheduling and bad agent work, they passed on her and cast Sean Young in the role. Now, there are horseback riding scenes in the film, and while Sean Young was practicing for those, she broke her collarbone. And so, a week before they were going to start filming, Basinger was called and asked if she wanted to take the role, and she said yes. Interestingly, Michelle Pfeiffer was also up for this role, and she was dating Michael Keaton at the time. She opted to pass on this, but would come back to play Selena Kyle and Catwoman in the 1992 film Batman Returns alongside Keaton. Camilla Basinger is an American actress born in 1953. She would go on to win an Academy Award in the 1997 film LA Confidential. She would continue to work, although Batman, would be the highest grossing film in which she would appear. Michael Goff played Alfred Pennyworth. He is one of two actors who would appear in all four of this run of Batman films as Alfred. Alfred is the butler of Batman and the only one who knows Batman's secret before he inexplicably takes Vicki Vale into the Batcave for some reason in this film. Francis Michael Goff was born in 1916. He passed away in 2011. He was a prolific actor, best known for his role in the Hammer Horror films that started in 1958, which is where Tim Burton became familiar with him and became a fan. And he would be cast in three other Tim Burton films, including Sleepy Hollow, Corpse Bride, and Alice in Wonderland. Robert Wool played reporter Alexander Knox, born in 1951. He's an actor and comedian. This was a high point of Robert Wool's career. Which culminated, I guess, in the nineteen ninety-six television series Arless that ran for six years. It's not a huge role, but Wall does a lot with it. Billy D. Williams plays Harvey Dent. In the comics, Harvey Dent would become the villain Two Face, and Billy D. Williams signed on to this role thinking that in future films he would play the two face role and had a contract that said that this would be the case. When they finally decided to use Two-Face in the 1995 sequel Batman Forever, Warner Brothers decided they would prefer Tommy Lee Jones, and they bought out Williams' contract. William December Williams Jr. was born in 1937, and while he would work in lots of things and continues to work today, he is best known as Lando Calrissian in multiple Star Wars films. Pat Hingle played Commissioner Gordon, Chief of Police. He is the second actor who appears in all four of this run of Batman films along with Michael Goff. Pat Hingle was born in 1924. He passed away in 2009. Worked a lot with Clint Eastwood. But his first film was the 1954 classic On the Waterfront. Jack Palance played Carl Grissom. Palance passed away in 2006, was born in 1919. He often played tough guys and was nominated for three Academy Awards, would win the Oscar in 1991 for his role in City Slickers. He also did a great job hosting the TV show Ripley's Believe It or Not in the 80s, and was in a film that I really love, Hawk the Slayer. Rounding out the cast, you had Jerry Hall as Alicia Hunt, Tracy Walter as Bob the Goon. I understand that Tracy Walter, who, if you've seen City Slickers, he plays Cookie, so a City Slickers connection there he's also malik in conan the destroyer and we would use the name malik from conan the destroyer in lots of the D games i would play almost every D campaign i've had i've shoved someone named malik into it we also had lee wallace as mayor borg william hootkins as lieutenant max eckhart and then a host of other people Another star of this film is the Batmobile. The chassis of this Batmobile was built on a Chevy Impala, and it had the engine of an Impala, the taillights of a Ferrari, and jet engine parts from a Harrier jump jet. It also had that great sliding cockpit that also looked like what you would have on a jet. That happened because when they designed it, they didn't have a door. And when Tim Burton saw it, he turned to the designer of it, Terry Ackland Snow, and said, Well, this is great, but where's the door? Because they needed to keep the lines right, they decided on the cockpit, because they could sort of just have it roll back from the top. The Batmobile was 20 feet long and had a 8-foot wheelbase. The completed prototype weighed 1.5 tons. Two prototypes would be built for filming, and they had a great special promotion with the film, where MTV held a steal the Batmobile contest, the winner of that contest would be awarded one of those prototypes with the engine removed. When they put Michael Keaton into the Batmobile, they hadn't really thought about the cowl, which is the hood helmet thing that Batman wears, which added several inches to Michael Keaton's height. And the cowl got stuck in the cockpit when it would slide the first time it was tested. Because of this, whenever they had to put Batman in the Batmobile, he has to wear an alternate cowl with shorter ears. This film has a great soundtrack. It actually has two albums. One that was scored by Danny Elfman who was a longtime collaborator with Tim Burton and who would work on films like Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice. He also wrote the theme to The Simpsons and fronted the band Oingo Boingo. But this film would spawn two soundtracks, one of the orchestrated music, but another that was music inspired by Batman. A big part of 80s and even 90s music were the soundtracks that were filled with music by popular artists. They would make a fortune off of these. And so several people were approached about doing a soundtrack for Batman, including Michael Jackson and George Michael. Ultimately, Prince was brought in to do it, and Prince's 11th studio album, Batman, was released on June 20th, 1989. It was a huge hit for Prince and Warner Brothers, and would stay number one on the Billboard 200 for six consecutive weeks. It's a nine-song album, and would chart in multiple countries, hitting number one in three countries, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and the United States. It was a big hit, and the music video got constant play on MTV, which just helped to contribute to the Batmania at the time. I listened to it again recently. It holds up, but what really holds up is Danny Elfman's score, They did release the original motion picture score at the time, but in 2010, La La Land Records released the complete score, which is a much longer version and has some real fun bonus cues on it. To say that 1989 was the year of Batman might be an understatement a gold and black airbrush logo would start appearing everywhere. And that was designed by Bill Garland. What was really clever is there were no words. It was just the bat symbol. And a lot of these decisions were made by the people behind this film who tried to keep a unified vision of what this film would be. That even meant that when they had financial opportunities, say like when GM wanted to build the Batmobile, They turned them down because it meant that they wouldn't have creative control over an element of the film. Batmania would start in Christmas of 1988 when they would take footage from the film and make a trailer that ran in thousands of theaters. It was a very simple thing with just some scenes, but it went over really big. Which was probably a good thing because a lot of the press at the time were really worried about what Michael Keaton was going to bring to the role. But people saw something on screen that seemed different. And before June of 1989, a deluge of Batman merchandise would hit the market. And they would eventually sell over $750 million worth of this merchandise. The film was eventually released worldwide on June 23rd, 1989. It did get an earlier release in California for the premiere on June 19th, 1989. Batmania aside... As soon as this film started showing in late night previews on June 22nd of 1989, people could tell this was going to be a hit. People were lining up, and on those late night preview nights, the film made $2.2 million, and on its opening weekend, it made $40.4 million, which broke the opening weekend record that was held by Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and Ghostbusters 2. It would go on to break all sorts of box office records before finishing with a $251.2 million gross in North America and a $160.1 million gross internationally. It would be the highest-grossing film based on a DC comic book until 2008's The Dark Knight, and it is the 66th highest-grossing film in North American history. What other things were out at the time? Well, that week, Batman was the brand new film. It was followed by Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which opened that week as well, which is a bold move to open Honey, I Shrunk the Kids the same time as Batman. But Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is strong, did well, spawned a lot of sequels just like Batman. Still in theaters was Ghostbusters 2, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Dead Poets Society, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, Field of Dreams, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, Roadhouse, No Holds Barred, Pet Cemetery, K-9, and Twins. A solid lineup of films. A lot of people realized that Tim Burton was much more interested in the Joker character, and some people didn't love the dark tone, but overall... People were very positive about Jack Nicholson's performance and Michael Keaton's performance in the film. A criticism that seemed pretty apt was the use of the Prince music in the film. Not that Prince's music isn't good, but it does seem a little disjointed and it felt like something that Tim Burton was forced to do. Tim Burton has said that he had no problem with the Prince songs, but he didn't like their use in the film. Now, comic fans might have been critical before the film came out, but they're really the ones who embrace this film. Roger Ebert would say, Batman is a triumph of design over story, style over substance, a great-looking movie with a plot you can't care much about. He might not have loved the film, although his reviewing partner at the time, Gene Siskel, disagreed. He thought the film was refreshingly adult. The thing that Ebert got right was that the design of this film really wowed people. And... It's the first Batman movie to win an Academy Award. It won for Best Art Direction. And Nicholson would get nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Best Actor. So people were standing up and taking notice of Burton's style. Since it was such a big hit, it of course would spawn multiple sequels. Tim Burton would direct the sequel, Batman Returns, in 1992. The... Next to Batman Forever and Batman and Robin would be directed by Joel Schumacher. And during Schumacher's time, these films would get a lot more colorful and a good amount sillier. One of the great things about the Batman film was that Warner Brothers Animation would create the wonderful Batman the Animated Series. Which if you're watching any sort of cartoons, maybe even any sort of comic book movie or TV show... Batman the Animated Series really helped to establish most of what we take for granted nowadays in our comic book entertainment. At its very minimum, the style and design of Batman helped to set the tone for a lot of comic book movies that would follow. That sort of dark, brooding comic book movie that a lot of people are a fan of. Tim Burton set the stage for that. I worked in a video store when Batman came out on VHS. It was released... On VHS in the US on November 15th, which is less than six months after its theatrical release, which was a very short amount of time, had never had anything like that before. We would sell this for under $20, we'd have a stack of them, and they'd be gone in a day. That Christmas, everybody must have gotten a copy of Batman, because we couldn't keep them on the shelves. It would eventually get a release on Laserdisc, DVD, and Blu-ray. The most recent release of the film was on Ultra HD Blu-ray in 2019. Let's return a little bit to Batmania here, because there was so much Batman stuff out there. Toys, video games for the NES and Game Boy, Halloween costumes, makeup kits, a wonderful series of toys, Game Watch, and so much more. I want to talk a little bit about the Batman Taco Bell Collector's Cups. This is one of the earliest Memories I have of being disappointed in a collector's cup. Not because the graphics weren't cool. But because it was plastic and not made of glass. It didn't stop me from getting these collector cups. And almost all collector's cups from that point on. And probably many before were plastic. But these are ones I wanted. And so in my head, I wanted them to be glass. Because I wanted them to be with all my other collector's cups. Probably the best Batman tie-in for me was Batman the Cereal. It had a great honey nut flavor, sort of a lighter, toastier version of Cap'n Crunch, but in the bat symbol shape. It also had some really cool cereal premiums, including a shirt, frisbee, comic book, a poster, and a kite. A lot of those things you could send away for. They also had a bank, a Batman bank, which was sort of Batman's torso. And I remember going to the store, I think the food town, and they had them all on the shelves there. And these particular ones were wrapped on the outside of the cereal box, but wrapped in plastic. So they'd be taking up way too much shelf space. And they made so many of them that you could be getting these Bat-banks for months after Batman came out. And I probably had three or four of them at some point. By the late 80s, cereal premiums were already getting pretty sad. But then to get one that was so big that it didn't even fit in the box anymore... That was kind of special. So Batman deserves credit just for doing that. How to sum up Batman. According to Tim Burton, he said, I like parts of it, but the whole movie is mainly boring to me. It's okay, but it was more of a cultural phenomenon than a great movie. I think that while I like the Batman films, and I've seen them way too many times to count, I think that... Part of what Tim Burton is saying there is accurate. It's a fun movie to watch, but what made it great was the cultural phenomenon around it. For a while, we were all united in Batmania. It's something that as a film fan that I've been chasing ever since, and it doesn't happen very often. Maybe the first Jurassic Park film did that. Maybe when they re-released the Star Wars films, we saw some of it, but... When it does happen, it's special. And for Batman, it was particularly special because it really came out of nowhere. Batman set the stage for many modern comic book films and influenced how marketing is approached in these films. So if you're looking for a film to revisit or watch for the first time, why not check out 1989's Batman? Then go online and look at the tremendous amount of products that are related to this film. Some of them are just really fun. The toys are amazing to collect. The Batmobile is a joy to behold. And it's all of these things together, not just the movie or the movie experience, that make Batman special to me. And hopefully it can be special to you. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at Retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com Retroist. Music you hear on the show is by Peachy. You can follow Peachy on Twitter at twitter.com slash peachypixel8. That's the word peachy, the word pixel, and the number eight. Just look for the Welsh flag. Thanks to all the people supporting the show on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, you can drop by Patreon at patreon.com Retroist. We just completed voting on the first member episode. If you'd like to access supporter episodes, you could drop by the Patreon and be able to vote on future members-only episodes. If you can't stop by Patreon, please go to wherever you download this podcast and give it a positive review. It helps new people find the show. I'd like to thank some of the newest Patreon members. Will Welton, Jeremy Goodier, Dan Heavey, VR, and Ed Laden Controllers. If I did not say your name right, or I'm using the wrong name, please drop me a line either through Patreon or over on Discord, and I'll be happy to correct that in the future. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. This has been a Retroist production. Goodbye.